So, um, yeah, so we're going, we'll have a talk before the groups, um, and, uh, and that's a talk on impermanence. So I'll just read out some of the verses about impermanence from the, uh, from the scrolls um, that hopefully you've all picked up. If you haven't got one, do pick one up. Um, and these are, the, these are verses from the Dharmapada, which is the, uh, reported to be the word of the Buddha. So he says, Not in the sky, nor in the midst of the sea, nor yet in the clefts of mountains. Nowhere in the world is there any place to be found where, having entered, one will not be overcome by death. You are now like a withered leaf, Death's men have approached you. You stand at the door of departure and you do not even have provisions for the road. Make a light of yourself. Work quickly. Become one who is spiritually mature. Look upon the world as a bubble. Look upon it as a mirage. The king of death does not see one who looks upon the world in this way. Whoever grasps the rise and fall of conditioned existence, they attain a joy and delight that to the discerning person is as nectar. So they're very strong verses about impermanence and death in the Dharmapada and in the early Buddhist tradition. Um, I've heard uh, one commentator saying that the Dharmapada is like hammer blows. They're sort of kind of beating you into shape, really. Moulding you into something. They're not, um, like I said last night, they're not kind of Buddhism light. They're not some sort of uh, nice quote with a nice picture of the Buddha in Asia somewhere in a few lotuses. They're, um, they're, they're very, very strong and direct. A kind of direct meeting of mind to mind. And in a way they have to be because from the Buddhist point of view, the reason that we suffer, the reason that we get into conflict with one another, the reason that we get depressed... Um, and struggle in life is because we've fundamentally misinterpreted our experience. And what the Buddha's trying to do here is he's trying to shock you out of a kind of lazy um, complacency as to what our interpretation of our experience actually is. So what happens from the Buddhist point of view is that... Um, in all our experience, we're not just, uh, we're always interpreting the raw data of our senses. So, for example, I see a flower. Um, the flower meets my eye, which gives rise to eye consciousness. And then my brain interprets, well, this is a flower. And um, it will st start making all sorts of views and um, theories about what the flower is. So, you know, immediately I'll start thinking, well, do I like, do I like that flower? No, I'm not sure it looks a bit like it. Or, yeah, no, I really like that flower. Or, um, you know, I'll start thinking about it in a particular way, like I wonder where that cat flower came from and, uh, you know, does it go with the shrine? Or, you know, I start, uh, Maitranara mentioned last night the word propancha, you start, um, which is mental pr proliferation. You start to sort of expand on one's experience, uh, making all sorts of theories and views about it, dependent a lot on... Uh, who we are and our past conditioning um, and our own um, preconceived ideas. And we all know this in a way because we all have that experience where um, sometimes uh, similar things can happen in a day, but depending on how our mood is, we'll experience those things completely differently. 
you know, the, the chatty person at the bus stop on one day will be like, oh, that's great, you know, people are so friendly around here, and then and another time they'll be quite annoying. And in a way, they haven't changed, or that person at work, or who, whatever it is. Um, our experience depends um, not just on the raw data of our senses, but how we're constantly interpreting that. It's a bit like that ink block picture. You know when they have those ink block pictures? And in a way, you've got the same picture, you've got the same arrangement of shapes um, and colour. But um, what you see in that ink block will be completely dependent on your mind and how you generally interpret the world, generally how you're interpreting your sense data. And one of the things that we do um, with our sense data, one of the mis sort of most fundamental misunderstandings from the Buddhist uh, point of view, is that um, our misunderstanding is that our experience is permanent. Um, we fix it. Um, so this happens at every level, every time we experience something. We're trying to fix it, make it solid, make it permanent and real. Um, so it happens in every moment, but it also creates a kind of story of life, which is we're going to continue in the same way, pretty much, give or take, we'll continue in the same way, and um, we're never going to die. That would be the ultimate expression of that. And of course, I'm not talking about an idea, because if I asked any one of you personally, like, does life just remain the same forever and are you going to die? You'd go, no, life's not going to remain the same forever and of course I'm going to die. But of course, that's not actually how we live our lives a lot of the time. We live our lives as if our life will continue forever, pretty much in the same way, and that we're not going to die. Um, and of course, in a way, it's like that because um, what we're looking for is permanence in a very uncertain world. Our world is constantly changing. Our, our sense experience is constantly changing from moment to moment. And um, the things in our lives are constantly changing. And within that, there's a lot of uncertainty. We feel quite unsettled. And we want to, um, you know, find a fixed point. Even the Buddha was the same as this. There's a, a very interesting early description of his own life that, that he gave. And he said, well... Um, he said, I saw people in conflict like fish struggling in water too shallow. And he said, I long to find a place of shelter. I long to find something solid in the world. But there's nothing in this world that is solid at base and not a part of it that is changeless. And then he says something very interesting. He says, when I saw this, I was afraid. You know, and I think that's, that's in a way, that kind of common human experience that... Um, in this uncertain world, in a world full of change and uncertainty, we can experience quite a lot of fear. And in that fear, even sort of unconscious fear, we try to find permanence. And I think particularly living in the modern world, we've got information coming from computers uh, all the time, you know, constant uh, stream of information, social media, computers, phones... Um, we're constantly exposed to changing advertising. We have a lot of conversations with different people. Um, we have jobs that demand, you know, quick thinking. And, um, you know, the working environment is such that actually people can't uh, depend on a job for life in the way that they used to. Yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty in the world. And, of course, we were exposed to bigger problems um, like the, uh, the future of the environment and the possibility of climate change and 
um, all these things that are happening around us. In the early Buddhist tradition, they talked about, they said, um, it's like you're stuck in the rush of the river of being, desperately trying to find an island, trying to find a rock to hang on to. And I quite like that image because it does very much feel a lot of the time like we're stuck in the rush of the river of being, trying to find solidity, trying to keep things still. So that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to keep the things still and say, well, it's like this, you know, in this rush of the river of being, this is what life is. Or we start projecting it into the future. So we say, well, things will settle down when, you know, when my, when my boss leaves and is replaced by a nicer boss. And um, when, uh, you know, when I've finished this degree or I've finished this piece of work or... Uh, uh, whatever it is that's going on in your mind. I mean, for, for Buddhists, it can sometimes be, um, you know, when I get ordained, then it'll stop. You know, I'll just be there and I can live in this sort of permanent world. I'll, I'll have found my place, my little niche in the world. And then it will all calm down. And then it will all sort of, you know, stay pretty much the same. So that's what we're looking for. We're looking for a place where when all this, these conditions are in place, then, then it will kind of stop, it will slow down. But of course, life isn't like that. Um, and you can't find, well, the Buddha talks about, not in the sky, nor in the midst of the sea, nor yet in the clefts of mountains. You've got this image of, you know, someone just dead and like, where is it? Where is that place of permanence? I don't know why it would be in the sky. But anyway, particularly without an airplane. But, you know, maybe if I just astral project right up there or levitate, then, uh, yeah, then I'll, then I'll be in the sky and that will be a solid place. Down in the depths of the sea or in the mountains. So what we do is, you know, in that tr trying to look for permanence in an impermanent world, in a changing world, we start to do something called absolutizing. We generalize from our current experience, whether our current experience is good or bad, we tend to think this is how it is. We, we're making a generalization from what's happening now as to this is how it is. So, you know, if we wake up uh, in a bad mood, um, I like the way I start with that. That's my general experience of, of life, is waking up in a bad mood. And uh, I kind of think, well, that's it. You know, that's, that's me. That's my mood. <laughs> um, fortunately, it's not. So yeah, so if we're in a bad mood, we kind of think it will be like that forever. This is who we are. This is going to be our state of being. Um, if we get a cold, we think that's it. You know, I'm never going to recover. Um, we, can, uh, we can think this is just never ending. You know, this is how it is. I'm never going to recover. Uh, or if life is going well, we think, okay, well, this is how it is. This is how life is. Um, you know, my new car will never break down. My partner will stay with me forever. Um, or we might have a kind of moment where you get that new job and you think, right, this is it now. Great. Or you might have a kind of moment, so it's a bit like, um, you know, you're in the park. It's a sunny day and bright sky and everybody's happy and relaxed. And you think, well, this is it. This is it. This is how it's going to be. And, of course, um, it's not. <clears throat> things change. And things change pers in our sort of personal mental states, in our moods. I mean, the mind is an incredible thing. You can see a whole weather systems from one end of the day to the other. 
uh, you can see the movement of the mind from one you know from the beginning of the meditation to the end of the meditation even but it's about personal mental states but it's also about the world around us um, and the society in which we live so you know depending on our view of things it might be that um for example, you're quite depressed about the state of the government at the moment, and uh, you think, well, that's the way it is, you know, because uh, these austerity measures are going to go on forever. Um, we're going to have this kind of government forever. We might as well resign ourselves to it, sort of thing. Or you might uh, think about it positively. You think, well, this is always going to be a fairly wealthy, stable democracy. And it's very interesting, I, I mentioned before, I do do a bit of work in India with the Indian Buddhists, and, um, and they're completely bemused by the Western attitude to their own government and the way their society is structured, because they say to me, well, you need to understand, in order to have a just society, you need to fight for it. You, you don't just have it just because you were born in a country that has it now. It can change at any moment. Um, so we take a lot for granted. We absolutize from our current state of being and from the way the world, our experience of the world at the moment. And we absolutize it into saying, well, this is how it's going to be. We take an aspect of reality and we generalize, we fix it. And of course, this is how we also, uh, it, it also influences how we experience death uh, and our views on death. So if we tend to have a slightly, um, uh, if we have an experience of life that where painful experiences predominate, uh, are, are more dominant, um, we can get into a quite a state of mind of despondency. And this will affect the way we view death. So we can even start to long for death. I don't think it's that people actually really long for death itself. Um, but what they long for is an end to the current, their current state of suffering. So if we've absolutized painful experience, if we said actually life is just generally painful, we'll tend to have an attitude towards death, which is a slight attraction, just because we're um, wanting an end to suffering. So the Buddha definitely talked about that attitude to death, just wanting life to end. Personally, I found it a bit of a relief that he did, because I think that's an uncomfortable truth that we, we can sometimes miss out when we're talking about... Um, uh, death. There is a slight, there can be a slight attraction to it. Well, it's not an attraction to death, it's, a, it's an attraction to ends. It's an attraction to ending suffering. And by the same token, if, if we predominantly have a pleasurable experience, it can lead us to be quite idealistic, um, thinking that, you know, life is, a, is great and uh, it will continue to be so. And we can start to ignore the fact of death. We can fear death because it's an end of pleasure. So the Buddha said, well, it's not really like either of those things, actually. Life contains both. Life contains um, pleasure and it contains suffering. It contains painful things as well. And that's just the way it is living in the world, pleasure and pain. Um, and... Um, from that point of view, uh, it's tonight he suggested neither welcoming death nor fearing it. Um, because death is a part of life, and if we prepared ourselves, we can just surrender at the right time to the natural processes. And you can see that in the lives of, uh, of um, Buddhist teachers, you know, look at their life and the way they face death. I think that's certainly true of, uh, of our own teacher, Sangharachita. But um, I think he just thought, well, you know, 
I've done, I've done my work. And, uh, and now's the time to go. And just, he just let go. It's called, uh, in Buddhism, it's called renouncing the life force. So you just renounce the life force and just slip into death. Um, there's a really lovely little uh, story about the Buddha, actually, and uh, a lay follower called Mahanama. And Mahanama comes to the Buddha and he says, um, he says, I'm, I'm really worried about dying because I just keep forgetting things. I just, you know, I forget to meditate and um, I forget about, you know, the Buddha and the Buddha's teachings and the Buddhist community. And uh, I'm not really that hot on Buddhist practice. That's not quite what he said, but, you know. Um, you know, he was, he was worried. He said, but so what's going to happen when I die? Because fundamentally I forget to do my Buddhist practice and I'm a, a tiny bit lazy. And uh, the Buddha said, um, if a tree is leaning towards the east and you chop the tree down, which way will it fall? And Mahanama says, well, obviously it's going to fall towards the east. And the Buddha said, and so it is with you, Mahanama. You're leaning towards enlightenment. You're leaning towards the spiritual life. When you're cut down, that's the way you'll fall. Which I find very, very encouraging, actually, for myself, because often I just forget about, you know, my spiritual practice and I wake up in a bad mood. And um, one could feel a bit sad about that. But uh, actually, if we practice, if we put in conditions, good conditions in place and um, make some effort towards the spiritual life and towards transforming our consciousness um, into a consciousness of love and wisdom, then the Buddha was quite reassuring on that point. Well, when you die, that's the direction you'll go in. Whatever happens next, it will be a good thing. So yes, so the Buddha asked us to realise that things are always changing. And what he's asking us to do there is, is to expand beyond our narrow view of experience and absolutizing our, our narrow view of experience and to look at the whole picture. And the whole picture is one of constant movement, of constant change, from mental states to the smallest cell, to the atom, um, to the greatest mountain. Everything is shaped by time, you know, even the Himalayas, which are you know, the greatest mountains in the world, are made up of small seashells uh, right on the roof of the, of the world. You know, they weren't always like that. And so it is with our mental state, so it is with our bodies. They're constantly changing. Everything is in a process of change. And um, sometimes we're reminded of that. Sometimes we're reminded of that because um, something happens to shock us out of our misinterpretation of permanency. So life doesn't, uh, no longer conforms to our expectations. It might be a death. It might be uh, losing a job or a partner. Um, it might be um, all some plans that you've made that have suddenly fallen through. Uh, your children become ill. Um, it's something you might want to talk about in your groups, actually. It's about, uh, have there be, has there been a moment where um, you've been going along your life in a particular way and then, whoosh, you know, the carpet's been pulled out. And there's a sudden reminder that everything changes. Everything you took for granted. Anything at any point can change. Everything is changing. Um, it could, of course, be another way. It could be that, um, you know, we are ill and we do get better. Or um, our boss does leave and we do get promoted. <laughs> and, uh, you know... Um, Friend, you know, uh, we're having difficulty with a friend 
who we think that doesn't like us suddenly rings up. You know, it's not just that things end, things also start as well. But in a way, those things don't tend, generally tend to sort of shock us out of this complacency of, of impermanence. So a lot of, um, a lot of the time when people come to Buddhism, it's because something has happened in their lives that's reminded them that everything changes. And of course, death is the most challenging example, but actually it happens on all levels. I think that's why um, this reminder is impermanence and death. It's not because they're two separate things, it's just that death is the sort of ultimate reminder of impermanence. It's the ultimate shock in a way. But change is happening all the time. And from the Buddhist point of view, that change is not random. That change is conditioned. And it follows a certain pattern. So this is very important because to a certain extent, we can influence the process of change by our actions. And that's what we're going to be looking at this afternoon, is the mechanics of change. And actually how we can start influencing, to some extent at least, the directionality of change in our lives. Um, but basically, in essence, what it means is um, all things arise in dependence upon conditions. If, um, if uh, a condition is set up, it will, give a it will give rise to certain likely outcomes. Um, the Buddha was very practical on this point. He just, um, someone will come to him with a really kind of knotty question about their lives. Really complicated. Things haven't changed that much. And the Buddha would go, well, like, what do I do? You know, what do I do about this? My family, my work, you know, whatever it is. Uh, my death. And the Buddha would say to them, well, um, does it lead to sorrow, lamentation, grief or despair? And they'd say, yes. And then he'd say, don't do it. And then they'd say, um, he'd say, does it lead to sorrow, lamentation, grief and despair? And they'd say, uh, no. He said, does it lead to the well-being of yourself and, another, and others? And does it lead towards wisdom? And they'd say, yes. And he'd say, do it. It's not that complicated, actually. <laughs> it just means a little bit of reflection time to uh, work out, well, if I do this, what conditions is it setting up for the future? And, of course, you all know that because you're all here. It's quite a remarkable thing to come on a weekend retreat, actually, you know, because you're going uh, into a group with people that you don't know. Uh, you might be concerned about how you sleep or... Uh, all sorts of things, what you're going to eat, you have very little, your, your level of choice dr decreases dramatically. And yeah, you don't have a choice about um, what, where you eat. Someone might be in the shower when you want to use it, or whatever it is. But you know that going through that stretch, as much and I called it last night, if you go through that stretch, then something will happen. You're setting up good conditions for the future. So yes, so change is con there's a constant flow of change, but actually it's conditioned. All things arise in dependence upon conditions. There's a pattern there. And I've noticed that when people start to reflect on change, uh, including myself, um, they tend to focus. If you talk, if you say the word impermanence, they'll tend to focus uh, on, or we'll all tend to focus on either things beginning or ending. Um, so I know when, when I was training for ordination, and um, I was 20 years old when I asked, and um, uh, my teacher said to me, right, I want you to write to me every two weeks on your reflection on impermanence and death. So I was 20 and I was, 
I was very dedicated. So um, I went home and I decided to reflect on death. Just like, <laughs> you know, basically when you're 20, you don't really, really believe that you're going to die ever. Um, so, and I made this shrine in my room that looked like a kind of voodoo kitchen. It was all sort of <laughs> skulls and all disgusting bones. I had a friend who was a medical student who gave me a human skeleton. That's probably actually wrong. Um, <laughs> just saying it out loud. Uh, and so I actually had, like, it wasn't a whole human skeleton, but it was, it was, it was quite a lot of parts of the human skeleton that were on my shrine. And I sat there trying to squeeze it out, you know, right, I'm going to die. I even had a skull and crossbones tattooed on my arm. Unfortunately, that really isn't impermanent. <laughs> it seems to be the only stable element of the universe. But anyway, there we go. You can put it on your shrine when I die. Right, where am I? Yeah, so I had this kind of like, I was going to squeeze out this reflection on death. Um, and of course that's true, but I was thinking about impermanence very much about an end, you know, and like the ultimate end, which when you're 20, you know, it doesn't really show much significance. Um, so what I did, I remember I, I went on this, uh, I went on this uh, solitary retreat and uh, I, was, I was really, you know, trying to, I was still trying to squeeze everything out, writing these really intense reflections. I've got them now upstairs, actually, all these really intense little handwriting I sent about my bizarre reflections on impermanence. And, um, and then I went on a solitary retreat and uh, it took me about three days, but suddenly I relaxed. And I was walking along this, um, I was walking along this road in Wales and uh, it was a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful um, spring day. And uh, I hadn't noticed, I don't know if they hadn't been there or they're just starting to come up, all these primroses on the side of the um, hedgerow. And I was just, uh, I was just marvelling at these primroses that coming up. I was just thinking, wow, you know, there's these little yellow flowers and they're utterly beautiful. I think, I, you know, I hadn't talked to anyone for a while, so life was slightly more exciting in the world of flowers. But... Um, and there it was, this beautiful little primrose in the side of the road. And I was utterly absorbed in this primrose. And then I kind of looked up and I just started to laugh. And I laughed because um, I suddenly saw what impermanence was really about. It's not just about things ending. It's also about things coming into being. And I thought about my life and um, uh, it just seemed to be indescribably beautiful and free. Uh, that I'd, I'd struggled with many things in my life, even at an early age. And um, I just felt I was no longer defined by those things, that actually, you know, with effort and um, uh, meditation and all the things that I was doing, communication, friendship, being on retreats, studying uh, the Buddha's teachings, that actually I'd freed myself to a certain extent. I wasn't completely free, but there was an, an, an opening there. Um, and I felt this kind of confidence that I was doing the best with my life and that something really beautiful was being made of my life. Um, and that my kind of, this little tender being that I was, that I am, um, was just doing the best that it could and that something really wonderful was emerging. There was so much kind of freedom and posi po uh, positivity. So I wanted to talk about those aspects of the reflection on impermanence. The sort of, in a way, 
the results of, of uh, reflecting on impermanence. And I'll talk about those in three ways. Um, beauty, meaning and freedom. So uh, another Buddhist text um, asks us to reflect on impermanence in the, in the following way. Um, the Buddha says, as stars, a fault of vision, as a lamp, a mock show, a dewdrop, dewdrops or a bubble, a dream, a lightning flash or cloud. So should one view what is conditioned. So these are very famous verses from the Dharmapada and you can see they're sort of echoed in the, in the verses that we have of the Dharmapada. Um, did I just say Dharmapada twice? The first one, the one I just read out was from the Diamond Sutra. Did I actually say that? Okay, good. So um, if you go through these analogies, stars, a fault of vision, a lamp, a mock show, dew drops or a bubble, dream, a lightning flash or cloud, so should one view what is conditioned. Um, all those images are images of beauty. They're images of transience and movement. They're fleeting images. Um, they're not solid and fixed, but they're also beautiful. And impermanence is very much tied up with this notion of beauty. It's because things change that they're beautiful. You could think about it a bit like music. If, um, if there was no change in music, it would just be one note which would become quite tedious after a while. Um, yeah. So part of the whole beauty of, movement, of music is um, that it's changing, that it contains silence as well as, as uh, you know, vibrations and noise. Or you can think about a beautiful sunset. The reason it's so beautiful is because there's just a very select um, number of conditions that have to come together for this sunset to happen. And it's, it's fleeting, it's not going to last. Uh, frosty mornings. Um, we've been having this wonderful thing where I live in Wales, where um, I really love it, uh, which is freezing fog. It doesn't sound great, does it? But actually, what it is, is um, there's this really thick freezing fog that sits in the valley. I live in a, in a valley. And um, it just, everything it touches, it, it uh, has these beautiful ice crystals, like so all the trees are coming, covered with ice crystals. And then if you go up a little bit above it, it's, it's sitting in the valley like a lake. So it's usually there's a blue sky above and then there's this kind of, there's this lake uh, of, um, well, sometimes they call it dragon's breath, in the, sitting in the bottom of the valley. It's extraordinary. It only happens a few times um, a year. But when it happens, it's like, you know it's going to end. The sun will come up or start dissolving the, the fog and the, these delicate little ice crystals. Wonderful. Um, stars is the other thing that we'll look at. You know, the reason that we find stars so beautiful is because, um, you know, it's only under certain conditions that we can see them. And they also remind us of our own impermanence. You know, you look at those stars and you, you realise, I'm not an expert on these things, but they're, they're, um, what we're seeing happened so long ago. And it gives you a sense of time being much, much vaster. We're just on this little sort of rock spinning around the universe. And um, ourselves are just little fleeting moment within that bigger picture. And in a way, I think there is a lot of beauty in that. There's a beauty in a kind of tender moment with just a select conditions coming together, crystallizing in that moment, and that moment will go. 
So yeah, so it's very important when reflecting on impermanence to reflect on uh, beauty and notice not just what's ending, but what's also coming into being, what is possible. I find that actually with people on retreat, you know, we can all kind of begin uh, the retreat a bit nervous and unsure of ourselves and, um, you know, and you've just had a busy week at work and people can, can seem a little bit closed. Um, and then by the end of the retreat, everyone's kind of opened up. It's really joyful. That's why I really like doing uh, beginners classes and retreats. Is um, there's something that uh, you can see people sort of beaming. It's like there's just a few conditions that people need to really, really blossom. A bit of friendship, meditation, silence. <coughs> so yeah, so what we're doing when we're seeing beauty in, uh, in the world is that we're seeing that um, the universe is alive. It's not a dead and fixed thing. It's constantly in a process of coming into being. And there's beauty in that. Our teacher, Sangaracha, he said, well, um, he said, you, you know, it's very important to see that the universe is alive. He said, you can see it easily in some things, like uh, trees and flowers and people. But um, he says, you've also got to learn to see it in things that even look quite fixed, like stones. And he says, I think it's my own personal limitation that I don't see plastic as alive. But, you know, in potential, you can even see plastic as alive. You know, it's not, it didn't always begin as plastic. Um, so, yeah, so noticing beauty on the retreat, noticing those moments. And also, I think the advantage of being on retreat is that, um, of course, we don't uh, have so much technology around. So, because our instant sort of response to beauty is to try and capture it and to try and kind of keep it permanent, you know, by taking a photo. So it's quite a good exercise to not have that, to just allow the beauty to be there in that moment without kind of trapping it into a photo. I don't think taking photos is bad. It's just quite an interesting experiment to not do that. The other thing is, um, is to notice meaning uh, when we're reflecting on impermanence. So change can often reveal to us what's most important. We expand our view beyond our current experience and look at the whole bigger perspective of change. And there's an opening there. Um, and I think sometimes we can experience this when there has been a big change or particularly in the face of death. Uh, it can ask, it's sort of in that big kind of existential truth of, of change, it invites the question, well, what's of most value to us? What's of most meaning to us? What's most important to me? And uh, I think you can have that kind of opening when, when those big things in life happen to you. But also, um, yeah, well, when we're around people who, who are having that process themselves, um, you can sort of see their opening up to the whole truths of life and death. I know uh, for myself, a very dear friend of mine who I live with, um, uh, her mother recently died under quite difficult circumstances. And um, just being around her is almost like a gift because the way that she's reflecting on it, and she says, well, you know, what, what I see in the face of this, of, this, um, of this change, in the face of death and bereavement, is just how strong our connections really are. And her mother didn't, wasn't um, happy in the, in the last stages of her or the last years of her life. She wasn't living a good life. She wasn't happy. Um, but there's something deeper even than that that sort of 
that survives life and death. There's some sort of deep connectedness that we all have with each other. And that, the depth of that connection is only revealed to us in under certain circumstances, and death being one of those circumstances. So there's an opening that can happen when we experience big loss or big, big periods of change, um, where everything is almost quite kind of fresh and new, and you really see, well, what's really important to me? Um, you know, so for my friend, it's, it's the fact that we're all connected, fundamentally connected. And um, I know I've also experienced it myself is that actually it's kindness that's most important, of uh, reaching out to each other uh, despite difficult circumstances. That's what's most important to me. Because traditionally this particular truth is to, is, um, to invite urgency. So if you read some of the traditional texts about impermanence, the, the message is, well, we don't know when death will come, so move quickly. That's what the Buddha says, move quickly. Um, but in a way, I think, um, I think we can only do that. We can only have that kind of urgency in our lives if we know what's really important to us. If we know what's really important to us, then we'll do it. If we believe something is truly meaningful and of value, we'll do it. And in a way, that's what the impermanence and death rec recollection is doing. It's not just saying, like, you're going to die, get on with it. It won't help that kind of attitude, usually. It lasts for a little bit. It's a bit like making a New Year's, uh, New Year's resolution. I've already forgotten my New Year's resolution. Have you forgotten yours? Yeah. Well, we did a puja. We wrote some things on bits of paper. I lost it. Oh, no, I burnt it. That's right. <laughs> Um, because we'll only do something, we'll only kind of have that kind of, uh, we'll only have that urgency if something's meaningful and important to us. So the important thing is to expand our vision and see what is important to us, what, what, are, what is of value to us. It's interesting because when the Buddha died, um, his last, the last words he say, said were, um, all things are impermanent with mindfulness strive on. So it's interesting that he then talks about mindfulness because um, one of the words for mindfulness is actually recollection uh, and recollecting your purpose in life. So if you recollect your purpose in life, um, in a way that's what survives change. That's what the, that kind of rock really is. He said also just shortly before he died, he said, make of yourself a light. And that's also in these verses from the Dharmapada. The word for light is deeper, uh, which can mean light, but it can also mean um, refuge or shelter or island. And I think what he's saying is, um, in amongst all this change, find out what's really important to you and then do it. Um, keep that as your kind of guide, as your light, as your refuge. You've got to be kind of become your own refuge in that sense. You've got to your purpose is going to have to be the stable thing. It's not stable in itself, because we've always got a different relationship to our purpose, but that's, that's what you're heading for. There's, this, um, there's a beautiful word in Sanskrit, actually, which is druva, uh, which means fixed, stable, firm, or constant, but it's also the word for the polar star. Anyway, I like, I like words. And... Um, and what I have there is this image that if you know what your star is, if you know what your light is, that's what provides that firmness and stability because you know where you're going. 
So, uh, yeah, mindfulness actually is, is, um, unites the, the both uh, recollection, but also uh, knowing where you're going, knowing where you've been and knowing where you're going. So that you're guided by something that's bigger than this uncertainty and this rush of the river of being. And you just follow that. We follow that. That's what that kind of mindfulness is in the Buddhist tradition. And there's a freedom in that. And there's a freedom in that because what it's telling us is that we can change. Just because something's been a particular way, um, it doesn't mean that that's the way they're always going to be. Um, you know, we are conditioned beings and our past to an extent has conditioned, or you know, quite, quite a large extent, has conditioned us to be how we are now. But it doesn't have to define our future. And I think that's what I really love about working in the ordination process, actually, because, um, because it, uh, we run particular retreats for, for people training for ordination, it means that you're seeing people constantly, um, you know, they come back every year, once or twice a year. So you're seeing people's process of change. And then what's really delightful is that you um, can ordain them at the end of that, uh, if all conditions come together. Uh, so, yeah, so then people, you see people's process of change, then they come up the mountain in Spain, and, um, and um, we symbolise this change by giving someone a new name. So that's going to happen to Charlotte shortly, which is why I'm looking at her. Um, yeah, and in a way, that's what that symbolises. It symbolises that actually we can change, we can become who we want to be, you know, that our life is a creative process. Uh, and we can create ourselves like a very beautiful um, piece of artwork. And we can set up conditions to direct the flow of change. So yes, yeah, so you might want to just notice that in this retreat about what conditions have, what, the, what are the conditions that have a particular effect on us, you know. Um, how are we changing even during the weekend? Um, and... Um, yeah, and not underestimating that change, what even just a few conditions can do um, to our mind and how they can change our mental state. So it's really good to keep reflecting on that, even at the beginning of the meditation and then at the end of the meditation. You know, How am I at the beginning? How am I at the end? What's happened in that process of change? And what are the conditions that brought around that, uh, about that change? You know, am I a different person at the end? And you can even ask yourself, well, is there anything that doesn't change? Is there any fixed, stable point in my experience? Um, yeah, and what is that? Okay, so there, if there is a stable point in your experience, what is that? Where is that? And sometimes it's interesting doing that exercise because we can assume things are permanent and fixed. Um, but actually, if we look deeper, we, we can see that they're really... Um, there's much more texture in our experience than we think it is. Sounds a bit odd, but I was thinking about this in terms of um, I get cluster headaches, and they are an experience of utter and complete and pure pain. So I can get into them and I can think, right, this is just stable, this is how it is, this is just going to be pain. Um, but actually, I, I've sort of taught myself to do this exercise where I think, well, you just call it pain, and you think it's like that. But actually, is it, all, is it a fixed experience or is it always changing? What's the stability in this experience that I call pain? 
quite interesting and you see that actually it kind of ebbs and flows a bit but hopefully you won't be in that much pain to do that reflection you could just do it with a sore knee uh, in meditation but yeah so you can see that um, is there any stable point in my experience and what is it and where is it um, you can even ask yourself well how much have I changed in my life you know what, what have I changed about myself <coughs> So we can change, other people can change, um, and society can change too. We can really build something um, beautiful uh, for ourselves and in society. And of course, this is uh, very important. Um, sometimes we call Buddhist centres an oasis in the desert. Sometimes that's what it feels like as well. That's what we're trying to do, building a Sangha. So say, for example, in the Brixton um, Buddhist Centre, you're trying to build a community of people uh, living life in a bit of a different way, um, being with each other in a bit of a different way, and that can have an effect on society. I definitely see that in India because, um, uh, well, things happen on a slightly larger scale in India, but also because um, it's really worked. Buddhism has really worked um, in a particular community of people. So even when you look at the national census, you can see that um, amongst those who've, who are practicing Buddhists, um, female literacy has gone up, female infanticide has gone down, um, people have better employment and educational uh, qualifications. And you can see that in a particular society. It's a society of hope, which is why I really enjoy, I know Sudika goes to India as well, but it's why I really enjoy going to India, because it's... Um, amongst the Buddhist community there, there's a real atmosphere of hope that Buddhism itself can change society because we're transforming our minds and our communication with each other. And that will have an effect on wider society. And it does. It really, really does. Very, very positive context. So, yeah, so we can do something in society as well. Things can change. Look upon the world as a bubble... Look upon it as a mirage. I don't quite know how to say that word. Look upon it as a mirage. The king of death does not see one who looks upon the world in this way. Whoever grasps the rise and fall of conditioned existence, they attain a joy and delight that to the discerning person is as nectar. So reflections on impermanence doesn't mean when it says the king of death doesn't see one who looks upon the world in this way. It doesn't mean to say that we're not going to die. Um, it means that the fear of death, or even the longing for death, won't have the same kind of power over us. It means that if we reflect on uh, the rise and fall of conditioned existence, we know what we're about and we go and do those things. We see the whole perspective of a changing life, and that opens up, up our experience we start to see um, beauty in a life of flux and process and change. We see that we ourselves can change, that we don't have to be limited or defined by our past, and that we can bring something of beauty and meaning into being. So reflection on impermanence and death is, you know, it's not about a kind of miserable, dour sort of um, hanging reflection, but it's about joy and delight. And it's about joy and delight because it's all possible. So I think I'll leave it there. Um, and what we'll do uh, now...
pretty much is we'll um, go and uh, we'll go and uh, get a cup of tea and go into groups. You might just want to think about a few things just to remind you of, of what I've said that might spark a trail of thought. One of them was about um, have you experienced a sudden change that's really kind of rocked your beliefs about permanency uh, in, and impermanence. Um, the other one was about um, uh, was about noticing beauty, noticing beauty and where sort of where we notice beauty, what conditions come into place for that beauty to arise. Uh, and another one is to thinking about how much we've changed, how much we've changed, and um, again, what conditions bring about that process of change. And I do invite you as well, if you've got a little space um, between things, a bit of reflection time, we'll have a bit more reflection time tomorrow, to really uh, to ask yourselves those questions. You know, where is beauty in my experience? Where is change? Is there anything that it doesn't change? And you can even have a, you know, your little notebook and just write stuff down. It doesn't matter. No one's going to mark you at the end of it. Um, you can just throw it away. But um, it's just, just to keep your mind going, you know, just to think a bit deeply, to just write things down.